The sermon passage today is from Hebrews 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes becoming, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So now, our Father and our God, we ask that you would speak your word to us. We are those who live as your people in your world, and we need your help. So Lord, this day, don't let us settle for the words of men. Don't let us settle for the ideas of others, but let us hear your word and let us be changed. God, I ask for your help, ask for your grace upon these people, and I ask that you would bear much fruit. Help us now, Father, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, uh, which Lori just read for us. Um, so here at Redeemer, we're working our way through uh, the book of Hebrews, and today our, our next passage is the one, um, Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26. Um, this is another of those warning passages. And so um, some of you who've been with us for the last few months might be saying, like, like come on, Pastor, like, why do you keep warning us about the same things over and over. And my answer to that is, well, because Hebrews keeps warning you about those things over and over, which means God thinks you need to be warned about those things over and over. But I would also add, I agree. Not that that really matters, but I agree. We need to be reminded of these things over and over. So, last week's passage ended with this verse, verse 25, Encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the key phrase there is, the day. Which, if you have read your bulletin, you would know that the title of today's sermon is, The Day. And when the Bible talks about the day, it means this. It means the day when the Lord will return and everything will be exposed for what it is, and justice will be poured out completely as justice must be poured out. 
That's what the Bible means about the day. And so I think, reading this passage, that the author, is kind of, he's writing like a pastor to a people. And so he says, don't neglect to meet together. Don't neglect to encourage one another. And keep increasing the intensity all the more as the day draws near. And then I think he just couldn't help himself but pause on the day and talk about it for a little bit. And what I believe is going on in verses 26 through 39 is he's exhorting them as they prepare for the day. And so, so the day again is the day when Jesus will come back, when all will be shown to be what it really is, and when justice will be brought about once and for all and forevermore. Meaning those who deserve wrath get wrath, those who deserve um, reward get reward. Those who reserve blessing get blessing. Those who deserve judgment get judgment. We will all be known for what we truly are on the day. Which then pushes the author of Hebrews to two questions for us. And here, here are two questions from this passage. Question one, do I really know Christ? If all was exposed, if my heart was exposed for what it really is, do I know Christ? Am I united to Jesus? Am I covered in His blood? Have my sins been forgiven because Christ died for me? Am I living by trust in Jesus? Or if it was all exposed, am I living in some complete other way? In many ways, what the author of Hebrews is lovingly pushing over his congregation. And what I hope to lovingly push over you today is where do I stand with Christ? And I actually think it's a good thing to ask that question. Second question. That the first one is verses 26 through 31. The second question is found in verses 32 through 39, which he's going to push upon us and it's this, do I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life? Do I see the fruit of genuine faith in Jesus in my life? So I might say it this way. No one belongs to God because of works or performance. We only belong to God through faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus bears fruit. Faith in Jesus continues to the end. Let me say that one more time. We are not able to earn our place in the family of God. Our works and our performance cannot do it. We only know God through faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus bears fruit. Faith in Jesus endures to the end. So those are the absolute declarations that shape this whole passage. But what the author's doing is he loves these people enough to say, but let's make sure we get it right. Let's make sure we get it right. And so the impulse, the pastoral impulse behind this passage is, the day's drawing near, 
And as the day draws near, all of our replacement rugs are going to be ripped out from under our feet so that we're going to be shown for who we really are. Are we going to be shown to be belonging to Jesus? It's far, far better to wrestle with that question now than on the day. So let's look at this together. Now, I will also admit, if I can be nerdy for a minute, some of you are like, amen, and some of you are like, oh no, he's going to be nerdy. I read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of Angry God this morning. You guys remember that from 10th grade English class? It was in the Norton Anthology, anybody? Some of you, yeah, they got like one person, okay, there we go, yeah, yeah. It's probably not there anymore, but it was in like 1980, 90-whatever when I was in 10th grade, 95, okay, whatever, all right. And I, I kind of just wanted to read it to you today, but, but I decided not to. But it would have been better, I'm just telling you. Um, so anyway, my mind is being shaped here, but I think it's appropriate, and we'll come back to, to Mr. Edwards in a few minutes. So the first point, if you're a note taker, is another warning. And, and I worded that for you guys, right? Because you're probably like, another warning? Like we did it in chapter 3, we did it in chapter 4, we did it in chapter 6, and now we're back again for another one? Yes. And the only way I can get my mind around to convey this to us is, the author of Hebrews knows something that's real and it's true. And that's this. There have always been people amidst the people of God who didn't really belong to God. That was true of Israel. It was true of the early church. It was true of the book of Hebrews. And most likely it's true of Redeemer Church. If I was thinking of you, I would be man enough to call you. But I'm just saying, the assumption is that the human heart tries to earn God's favor and perform for God's blessing and perform for a place in God's kingdom. And it is often true that many of us have never come to the end of our performance to repent and believe and ask for God's saving mercy to wash all of that away and to restore all of it and to make all things new. And it's possible that that's some of us. He knows that and he's going to belabor the point. So, therefore, I'm going to belabor the point. And I just want to convey this to you today. It's a good thing to ask the question, do I know Christ? It's a good thing to ask the question, do I know Christ? Now, so in this section, verses 26 through 31, I really believe the main verse is verse 31, the last verse. The truth that kind of puts the umbrella over it all. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The truth that shapes up this whole warning section is this. This life lived by us is either lived in Christ, for Christ, and by Christ, or it's lived in in me, for me, and by me. And I'm going to stand before the Lord. And when I stand before the Lord, I'm either going to fall into His hands or I'm going to be in Christ. And what this passage says is that our whole worldview 
is built by the reality that it is a fearful thing for a human to fall into the hands of the living God. Because when a human falls into the hands of the living God, apart from Christ, what they will receive is what, what he or she will receive is what he or she genuinely deserves, which is that all of our sin be accounted for and all of our sin be dealt with. So the truth is driving this pastor in the book of Hebrews and that's driving me today is that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I don't want any of you in and of yourselves to fall into his hands. I want you to be in Christ. Because the truth of the gospel is that if we're in Christ, we don't fall into his hands. We're forgiven. We're given righteousness. We're given acceptance. We're beloved. And we forever will belong to God and enjoy his glory forever. That's the truth of the gospel. But what the author of Hebrews is concerned about is that there are some, verse 26, who have heard and received this truth of the gospel and yet never been brought to the end of themselves to repent and believe in Jesus. So, for if we go on sinning deliberately, what that means is if we go on continually, intentionally choosing our hedonistic rebellion against repentance, remorse, and running to Jesus. Those of us who know that Christ died for our sin, but we still love our sin more. Those of us who might know that Christ died for our sin, but we're unwilling to turn away from it. Those who know that Christ died for their sin, but still choose their sin over and over and over and refuse to repent, refuse to feel remorse, refuse to turn away. That's what he means by those who sin deliberately. So what he's saying is it's possible that you've received the knowledge of truth, the knowledge that Christ died for sinners, and you still choose the world. You still choose sin. You still choose rebellion. You still choose your way, your strength, and your joy whenever you want it. And the reality is, is that even though these folks have heard of the knowledge of truth, they have not been united to Christ and they do not know Christ, and they are no different than the heathen who's never heard of Jesus. So when he says, continue sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. This is not some profound reality where we have to wrestle with, is it possible that I might be saved and lose my salvation? No, that's not what he's talking about. Is it possible that I might hear the gospel, but because I rejected the gospel will never be extended to me again? No, that's not what he's, what he's talking about. All he's saying is, is, if you're drowning in an ocean and I throw you a rope to pull you out and you reject the rope and you say, no, nah, I'm good, you're left in the ocean. That's all he's saying. He's saying if you reject the gospel and you reject the invitation of Jesus to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, you, you reject the invitation of come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What you're saying is, I'm good, I don't need your Savior, and so when you say that, you're going to face the Lord in and of your own performance, and that is a fearful thing. So all he's saying is, hey, all y'all who are around, make sure that you're not rejecting the Son 
And to, to make this point, drive this point home, he says, verse 27, there's the fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28 and 29 in verse 28, he makes an appeal to the law of Moses, where it says those who rejected God's law and God's ways, they died without mercy. Verse 29, he says, those who've heard the good news of Christ and rejected it, we've trampled underfoot the Son of God. We've said no thank you. We've proclaimed the blood of the covenant. I don't need to be covered by it. We've outraged the Spirit of grace. I don't need you to draw me. I'm good. And so if we reject God's Savior, then all that's left for us is God's wrath. That's the truth. And that's an unpopular truth, but that's the truth. Friends, if we defang the gospel offer from the wrath and anger of God against sin, then we've made the gospel into nothing but self-help. The gospel of Jesus the good news of God's grace, the good news of God's mercy flows through the truth of God's wrath. The gospel is good because God hates sin. The gospel is good news because God hates sinners. But he sent his son into the world to take away the rebellion and the sting of sin for sinners so that they could rest in his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. If we defang this gospel offer of the truth of God's wrath and God's hatred of sin, if we take away the reality that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, then our gospel is nothing. But if it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God, then to say, I do not fear the living God because His Son died for me. I don't fear the living God because His Son lived a righteous life for me. I don't fear the living God because His Son gave me His righteous life. I don't fear the living God because God loves me as if I were His Son. I don't fear the living God because the Holy Spirit dwells within me to make me like Jesus. I don't fear the living God because I'm covered in the blood of His Son. That is a glorious, glorious truth. Because everything we deserve was thrust upon Jesus so that we could get everything that He deserved. So our gospel flows through the pathway of God's wrath and God's hatred for sin. Which means this. It doesn't matter who we are, where we were born, what our family's always done, where we go weekly on Sunday morning, what rituals we've participated in, how moral we try to be, how we vote, or any of these other things that we heap up to make ourselves look good and acceptable and moral, none of that does anything to alter our standing before God. We need Jesus. And so the burden of the author of Hebrews, and my burden today is just simply this. There's been 300 people sit around and listen to this sermon today. I feel sorry for them. 300, anyway, like listen to me. But for every single one, 
The author of Hebrews is concerned that there would be one or two or three who have never truly known the saving power of Jesus in spite of religious performance. And he would say the way to kick through trusting our religious performance to make sure that we know the Son is to ponder the wrath of God against sinners and to ponder the wrath of God against my sin. My sin. You know, last night the men's team in our church had a, a seminar to talk about pornography and pornography usage. Don't worry, parents, I'm not going to explain what that is. Um, but I think when we do stuff like that, it's really easy to let it stir up self-righteousness in us. Oh yeah, that's for those really sinful people. No! No, in light of the gospel, we're all really sinful people. And our only answer to any seminar on any sin is either I need help because Jesus died for me, the Spirit will help me, or I need to celebrate the fact that the Spirit has so far delivered me from that. But either way, my hope comes from the Lord. But we approach it as if like, oh, I'm better. I'm more sophisticated. I've never stumbled. And no! We're all a wreck. We're all a mess. And the path to deliverance flows through pondering God's hatred for sin. So I'm just going to say a church, go on home and ponder the state of your soul. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Ask yourself this question. Am I deliberately unwilling to repent of my need for Jesus to cover my sin? And trust me when I tell you, our need for Jesus to cover our sin and our need to repent is not a one-time-in-the-past thing. It's a day-by-day, I need the grace of God, I need the grace of God. So I'm trying to decide if I want to do this Edwards thing or not. Let's take a poll. Who wants me to do the Edwards thing? Okay, we're going to do the Edwards thing. I saw two hands over here. So often, and my, 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 my goal here is not to vindicate Jonathan Edwards. I don't care what you think about Jonathan Edwards. But sometimes people just say it so much better than you, you should give them credit for it. That's kind of where I'm going here. So Edwards famous sermon from the Second Great Awakening. It's called Sinners in the Hands of Angry God. And it's often used to portray the anger and the lack of love of Puritans. But that's not it at all. Edwards was preaching a revival sermon, but he was preaching it to a bunch of churchy people. You see, the Northeast in America in the mid-1800s, it looked a lot like the Southeast in America in 2019. Everybody had a church background and a church experience and a baptism somewhere and a pew that belonged to their family somewhere. And in most churches, that pew had a lock on it. But that's a different story for a different day. That's how we all got so territorial, by the way. Don't you sit on my pew? 
Because in the 1800s, my pew had a lock on it. If I wasn't there, you weren't getting in. But as I said, different story for a different day. So the burden of Edwards wasn't to go out to those who they might have called the heathen who were far from God and never heard the gospel. His burden was to preach to a bunch of people like us and to say, don't be found without Jesus. And so in the sermon, there's this famous image of a being being compared to a spider who's being dangled over the fires of hell and all that's there to hold it out is the hand of God. But rereading Edwards, I don't think he viewed the spider as somebody in Afghanistan that's never heard of Jesus. He feared that you were the spider. And so he wrote this. Whatever some have imagined and pretended about promises made to natural men's earnest seeking and knocking, it is plain and manifest that whatever pains a natural man takes in religion, whatever prayers he makes, till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. Read that one more time. Till he believes in Christ, God is under no manner of obligation to keep him a moment from eternal destruction. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's ask the Lord to help us know where we stand in Christ. And I pray that you wake up tomorrow morning with more assurance of hope in Jesus than you've ever had. I'm not trying to beat anybody down. I'm not trying to scare anybody into some decision. We're not trying to bump any numbers. We're not looking for baptism Sunday. None of that is in mind. What's in mind is that you know Jesus and your eternity is secure in Him. Because it would be a wretched thing to settle for hanging out with me on Sundays and miss the eternal joy of knowing God in Christ. It's a pretty bad thing. Trade-off, isn't it? But before we leave this point, I think it's important that this point produces a bit of earnestness and weightiness in all of us. There's been a, a sad deluge of prominent pastors walking away from Jesus and showing it to us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. But what burdens me is not so much that those pastors are walking away from Jesus, but all those other people that are now questioning their faith because their hero just walked away from Jesus. And so when that happens, if our response is not weeping and prayer and anxiously crying out for the Lord to draw people back to himself, then we don't understand the wrath of God. Our impulse for those who walk away should be fearful longing for repentance and restoration. And I just have to be honest with you guys, my brokenness over this didn't come from those posts on Twitter. I kind of just shrugged and moved on to some sports scores. But this Friday evening, I had dinner with a friend who, by the way, let me be really clear, doesn't live in Hendersonville and has no relation to this congregation. And we discussed another friend who doesn't live in Hendersonville and has no relation to this congregation. 
who has most likely walked away from the faith. And I'm not just talking about an acquaintance. I'm talking about someone who mentored me, someone who shaped me, someone that I would say, if there's anything redeemable about my life and ministry, you should thank him. And now we're afraid he's walked away from the faith. And so I woke up this morning broken. I woke up this morning tearful. I woke up this morning sad. I woke up this morning pleading with God to redeem him and pull him out of the pit and not allow him to get through this life without knowing Jesus fully and savingly. Friends, if, if that's not our response to these weighty realities, then I'm not sure we understand the weight of them. And then I could heap up missions, and I could heap up evangelism, and I could heap up outreach, and I could heap up going, and I could heap up giving, and I could heap up praying, but it all flows through the impulse of understanding the weightiness of these realities. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I see a lot of visitors out there. Let me just be really clear. I do not believe that a genuine Christian loses their salvation. I'm not saying that at all. I don't think the author of Hebrews believes that either. But I think he believes that there might be lots of pretenders. Second point. So we had another warning. Now we have another word of hope. This is verses 32 through 39. And I know I'm asking a lot of you guys mentally today, but, but just give me a couple more minutes. Verse 39 is the, kind of the main verse of this section. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. And so here's the idea running through this passage. Those who have faith continue in faith. And those who have faith continually bear fruit that glorifies God. And what he does in this passage is he points out to them how much fruit they had bear, how much fruit they had borne in the past. Why would he do that? He does it to encourage their hope and their faith in God. He does it to encourage them to see that the Spirit of God is at work in them. So I want to be really clear. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. But those who truly know Christ will bear fruit for His glory. And what the author of Hebrews does in this section is he points out some of their fruit as a means to encourage them that the Spirit of God is with them. So he says... But recall the former days when after you were enlightened. So after you were, you were enlightened means after you knew the gospel, after you knew Christ. Listen, you endured hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, I'm calling that spiritual fruit because here's what the author is saying. You knew that you had an eternal possession in Christ. And your eternal possession in Christ caused you to endure suffering for Christ, to endure public humiliation for Christ, to be associated with those who are being publicly humiliated for Christ, to be compassionate on those who were prisoners for Christ, and to joyfully accept the plundering of your property for Christ. What he's saying is, it is a good thing thing to look at our lives and see the fruit of genuine salvation. I believe that's what he does when in verse 38 he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. Those who know Christ live by faith, and our living by faith bears much fruit. So here's what I want you to say here. Part of the answer to the question, do I know Christ, is to say, do I see any fruit of the Spirit in my life? And if you want to write this down, write down Galatians chapter 5, the, 20, the verses in the 20s there. What the author of Galatians says is that our lives are always bearing fruit. They're either bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Or the fruit of the flesh. So the fruit that we see, that doesn't determine our standing before God, but the fruit that we see tells us what kind of plant we are. Right? And so this passage infused with Galatians 5 says, go looking for the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And when you see it, praise the Lord for it, celebrate it, ask for more, and cry out to the Lord that He would continue to bear fruit in you. Now we who kind of come from a more reformedish mindset, we kind of have it hardwired in us, and I would say wrongly, that we're just evil worms and there's no good ever in us. That's what the Bible says we are before Christ. But the Bible says that in Christ, that worm is alive. And in Christ, he's not in the dirt anymore. He might be a butterfly. In Christ, we've been transformed. We are something new. And so if we see the fruit of the Spirit in our life, we don't have to push it down in the dirt with the worms and act like it's not there. We can just simply say, praise the Lord, the gospel's bearing fruit in me, the Spirit's in me, God is good, and I'm going to celebrate it. And then when Satan tempts me to despair and wonder if I really belong to the Lord, I can look not at my life and say, in or out, in or out, in or out, but I can look at my life and say, there's a trajectory of Holy Spirit transformation in my life that tells me the Lord is at work here, and I celebrate that. And I celebrate it in such a way that I praise God for it and I ask Him for more grace. And I praise God for it and I ask Him for more grace. This sermon and this passage is not intended to push us down in the weeds and make us doubt everything. It's intended to say, do I really know Christ? And if I really know Christ, am I really bearing fruit? And if I am, I'm going to be so grateful today that it shapes everything in my life. I want more fruit. I want more Holy Spirit. I want more repentance. I want more looking like Jesus. I want to be willing to endure suffering and humiliation and association with those who are humiliated and compassion on prisoners and joyfully accept the plundering of my property because my possession is with Jesus. That's what I want. So there's a word of hope for us. This pastor looks at his congregation and he lays out for them their faithfulness and he says God's at work in you I'm confident of it delight in it, take hope in God's work in you and ask him for more so this pastor stands here today and just says I, I'm, I see God's work in you I'm confident in it praise him for it ask for more Delight in Him and do it again and again and again.
That's why Christ came and lived and died to change who we are forever. And that's why he put us together so we could help one another live transformed lives forever. Take joy in what God has done in you. And I'd also say, if you can't find fruit of the Spirit in your life, you need to go back to point one. We got some stuff to talk about. But I would much, much rather talk about it now than deal with it later. This is the day. I'm going to conclude with this because it pushes us into next week. I started this sermon by saying, verse 25, the sermon is titled The Day because it's how we live facing the day. And there's this little phrase, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's the idea. Today is closer to the day than yesterday was. And tomorrow will be closer to the day than today was. That's mere chronology. Like, I'm not really being biblical when I say that. It's just what it is. But what this passage is saying is that tomorrow, the intensity of what it's going to cost us to walk with Jesus is going to be greater than it was today. And the next tomorrow, the intensity is just going to rise. That's why he says, and all the more, lean into one another as we see the day drawing near. So guys, as we see the day drawing near, what we're going to see is more suffering, more humiliation, more association, more need to associate with those who are suffering for Christ, a need to be compassionate on those who are imprisoned for Christ, more joyfully willingness to endure the plunding of our property for the cause of Christ. I just want to compel you with this as we conclude. I'm 40 years old, and some, some of you are older than me. And I would say every person in this room, our entire life, it's been pretty easy to be a Christian here in the South. In most pockets of Hendersonville, it's still celebrated to be a Christian. I mean, if you don't believe me, just go to any Christian businessman's lunch. And you'll see every businessman in Hendersonville trying to be identified as a Christian because it's good for business. So we've grown up knowing a culture where it's beneficial to belong to Christ. And that's why this passage feels so foreign to us. So I don't want to wish those days away. Frankly, let them stay. But all signs say it's going away. And soon and very soon, being a Christian won't be a celebrated reality. And when it's not a celebrated reality, rugs of comfort and ease are going to be ripped out from under us, left and right. And when they're ripped out, our true heart, our true faith is what's going to be exposed. So let's be ready for it as the day draws. I look around this room and I see many of you who have moved to Nashville because where you were, you were experiencing that pinch. We're glad you're here. Let's try to keep it a safe place to follow Jesus. But as the pinch comes, Jesus is still the Lord. And as the pinch comes, he would call us to walk by faith and preserve our souls even as the day draws near. Next week in chapter 11, we're going to look at what it looks like to walk by faith, even in really difficult circumstances. Our Father and our God, I pray now that you would come and teach your people.
and you would come and do a great work among us in this room. This is our hope today. This is our prayer. At this time each week, we take the Lord's Supper. Here at Redeemer Church, we invite everyone who's a Christian, everyone who's professed faith in Jesus for salvation, made that known to the church, we invite you to take this bread and take this cup as yet another declaration. I belong to Christ and his promises belong to me. So some men are going to come and they're going to pass out the bread, they're going to pass out the cup. We're going to sing together. I'll come back in just a few minutes and we'll take these elements as a testimony of our faith in Christ.